Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Is the happy song. Sorry. Well, hello, my friends. Here we are again. Welcome to the first episode of the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast. We have yet another great show for you today, and we have a lot of ground to cover, so strap on your yak tracks and hang on to your running buddies, and let's get to it. It's a cold Massachusetts Friday afternoon in my life. I'm finishing up on some tasks on my task list so I can burst forth from my home office and into the trails for an easy seven-miler with the Wonder Dog. I've got to set a live Grateful Dead on the headphones that my friend, that inglorious bastard of a demented genius, the Zen Runner, tipped me off to. And today, we will enthrall you with an interview of John Metz, who is a professional triathlete coach. I chat with him about how he helps people get it all done, And we also assault your senses with a piece on how we internally value our running efforts that I call my best run. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And lastly, I hit you directly in your pouty lips with a tactically instructional piece on how I think about the structure of life balance. And I was really excited about this piece until I wrote it up and read it. And I found it a bit lifeless because I focus more on relaying information and less on storytelling. And I think I'm better. I think my gift, if I can call it that, is storytelling. Like that wild-eyed shaman decanting tall tales in front of the crackling primeval bonfire. We've got a lot of catching up to do, you and I. Last time we spoke, I was preparing to undergo the extra corporeal shockwave treatment for my debilitating plantar fasciitis. Say that ten times fast. Well, I didn't (laughs) for a number of reasons. A funny thing happened. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I gave up on training and I stopped thinking about it. And a head coach write me up a maintenance program of biking and core work and I dutifully was following this six or seven days a week. And as the weeks went by, Coach started sneaking in some short runs into the program. And I knew I had the procedure coming up, so I wasn't so concerned about wrecking my foot. I started running three times a week, easy, in the woods with the dog. And the foot didn't get any worse. And I had a nice rhythm with my seven workouts a week, three easy trail runs, two core workouts, two bikes, and I was happy. And I'm not saying my plantar fasciitis got better. I'm saying I found a balance where I can run and train without discomfort, and I'm going to stick there for a while and see how the foot responds. I have, believe it or not, raced twice, and I'm up to a 12-mile long run in the trails on my long day, and the doctor told me I could either have the procedure or change my lifestyle. And while I wasn't paying attention, my lifestyle changed itself. So it's funny how life is, isn't it? I'll share one race story. That will give you an idea of my inner struggle with this whole thing. And I told the club that I could theoretically run a leg of the Mill Cities Relay with them. 
but I would be taking it easy and not raising all out. And obligingly, Howard put me on a team of mid-packer guys, and we had 13 teams entered into the relay. It's a five-leg relay with one short leg and one long leg. Usually I'm given the long leg, but at my request, I got one of the medium-length legs, a 4.75-mile anchor leg, to close the race. And as the day unrolled, we found ourselves neck and neck with another team from our club. As luck and fate were sure to conspire, it was all coming down to that last leg, my leg. And I protested that I had told them that I wasn't in any humor or condition to race. And apparently they had put me down for 715-ish miles. But, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about all the core work I've been doing and how... I may have forgotten more about long-distance running than my young opponent can even imagine. And he's young, and he's fit, and he's more than likely a lot faster than I am right now. And it will all come down to how much of a lead our number four runner gives me. And I may have mentioned out loud, loud enough for this young chap to hear something about 14 qualified bus and marathons, <laughs> and having run every leg of this relay at least once, and I came out of the of the handoff like a rocket and kept looking at for the other run the other team's number four runner to see how much of a lead I had. And I wanted to make sure the young guy saw me running strong and confident. And at the first mile mark I discovered that I hadn't started my watch, so I hit the button and tried to settle my pace a little bit. And I knew this leg. It had a big hill in the middle. And I figured I had enough of a lead that I didn't have to run five good miles, but I needed at least two at race pace to hold. Figuring his pace was in the low sevens, I figured my best bet not being in race shape was to survive the big hill. And if I had to fight, I'd fight on the long downhill into the finish. Downhills favor us big guys. And I passed a few women and was struggling up the hill when the van with my team screamed by, I thought someone said three minutes, but I wasn't sure, and I focused on my core and my form and my turnover, goosing performance, but keeping it under the red line in case I needed it. I crested the hill quite relieved, stretched it out. I was fairly sure that I was running in the low sevens overall and doing a great job of balancing my lack of fitness with my effort level, my speed, by running efficiently. Coming down the last straightaway, my quads, my quads were complaining from the unaccustomed hill work, and I took a look behind me, I didn't see any competition, and I backed it down and trotted the last few hundred feet across the potholed cobbles of Lawrence into the finish line. And I waited around in the chute, cheering and congratulating finishers until a couple of minutes passed and the other guy showed up. It turns out our number four had built up the cushion, and it was never in doubt. I had been racing shadows. I had been racing myself. Boy, was I sore on Monday. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Life balance, a primer, a framework to create a balanced life. Let us begin to take this most slippery of topics and wrestle it to the ground. Let us begin and grapple with the slavering beast that is seeking a balanced life. This will be the first post in a series that may explain <laughs> a summary framework of life balance. Future posts in this series will delve more deeply into tactics and strategies briefed here. 
Are you a seeker? Are you a restless soul who knows that there must be something better? Do you have great emotions and great energies, and you know there must be some way to harness these to make a worthwhile life for yourself? Does your inner voice or your sense of self constantly create noise inside your head, nagging you, nagging you constantly to search for answers to unanswerable questions? You are not alone. We are many. It is a natural human state to strive and to seek. It is one of the defining characteristics of our kind. We know what it is that you feel. We know how you suffer and strive. Let us share with you what we have learned from a life of seeking. Let us share with you what we have discovered from a life of learning. Let us share with you what we have been able to work out in our lifetime of striving so that you can start early to define your worthy life. How will you find balance in your life? This is your challenge and your burden, but we can leverage our experience to provide a context for you to use in your seeking. Allow us to share with you a map of sorts, a framework that will enable you to understand and to focus your yearning for a better world and a better place. Life balance a framework. Okay, so picture your life as four overlapping circles. Go ahead, grab a piece of paper and a pencil, draw four big circles. In the first circle, write work. Now this represents the part of your life that you dedicate to your career and your vocation, to making a living. In the second circle, write family, relationships. This represents your parents, your spouse, your children, your social activities, your community activities. In the third circle, write spiritual. This represents your spiritual life. Note that this is religion for many people, but is used here in a broader sense and not restricted to religious activities. In the fourth circle, write health. This is your physical self and your body. This is your framework, and this is what you're trying to balance. Between your circles, write the word balance in big, bold letters. So this is the framework I use when I think about life balance. It's how to balance family, work, spiritual, and health. Beneath your circles on your piece of paper, draw a big block or an arrow, and in this block or arrow, write the word self. What are your core attributes? What makes you happy? What fulfills you? It is these things that will help you define your balance. There's a set of attributes that you possess that are uniquely you, and they have nothing to do with your relationships and your career and all the rest of that stuff. They are the underlying skills and passions that you bring with you to everything that you do. And you need to find these things and to find your life balance around them. Unless you do this, you will always be slightly unhappy and unfulfilled. So the problem is when these areas in your life get out of balance. The problem of life balance arises when these areas of our life come into competition. So you may have noticed <laughs> you may have noticed that every one of these areas, your work, your family, your spiritual life, your health, every one of these demands 100% of your time. Your spouse and your family and your social engagements want all of your free time. You wish you didn't have to work so much. You want to get to the gym, but you don't have the time or the energy after a long day at the office. Even your religious activities want more of your time and energy than you have to give. 
Everyone wants more of your time, more of your energy, more of your creativity and passion. And you end up running back and forth frantically like a person trying to put out too many fires at the same time. You become so tightly scheduled that the slightest little blip sends your whole week spiraling out of control. And you feel like you are jumping from task to task without getting anything worthwhile done. So what's going on here? Why can't you find any life balance? Why can't you find the balance? Well, the reason you can't find the balance is that time is finite. No one can create more time. There's only so much time. There's only so much you can do in an hour or a day or a lifetime. The trick, the secret, is that you get to choose. The scarcity of time forces you to choose. If you can't get your life in balance or you're unfulfilled, that's, that means that you're not choosing well. Or worse, you're allowing someone else to choose for you by default. Time is not scarce. Time is abundant. You get to choose what you will do with that hour, with that day, with that lifetime. You can make it worthwhile. So what are some common out-of-balance situations and corrections? Well, over time, your focus will change. There will be temporary surges in your career that take you away from your family. There may be the birth of a child that will take you away from your career. Your life balance is not a static thing. One person's out-of-balance situation may be perfectly fine to another. The executive who is driven to the top of their company can be perfectly happy and fulfilled because they're acting in alignment with how they define themselves. Likewise, the mom or dad who chooses to stay home and school the kids may be perfectly and happily aligned with their sense of self. Different balances work differently for different people, and they change over time and over a lifetime. You get to choose. You have to make each area, work, family, health, spiritual, richer. So have you ever noticed people who seem to be good at everything they do? (laughs) Yeah, I hate them too. One of the great lies of life balance is that fulfillment is time-based only. Time is finite. But fullness, ripeness, and level of satisfaction are not. One of the best ways to make your life balance more fulfilling is to do each area as well as possible. Your life balance will become unstable if you don't continue to grow in all areas. You cannot just show up for work because that is what you have to do to to have your house for your family. You're cheating yourself. When you're at work, make the best of it. Love what you do. There's an abundance in every area of your life, and by realizing and seizing that abundance, you'll find a more fulfilling balance. Be a learner in every area, especially in your ongoing discovery of self. You are an unfinished masterpiece, so don't stop tinkering. Expand each circle, each area, with fullness and discovery. In essence, that old saying is true, you can't put more time into your life, but you can put more life into your time. Hopefully you're still with me here. The other thing you can do is you can engineer into your life overlap and alignment. So you need to find ways that your life areas overlap and augment each other. And this is what people really mean when they say they are living their passion. They've found a way to combine spirituality with health. They've found a way to combine work and family. They've found a way to align everything they do with their core attributes. You've seen this already. You have seen people who join a fitness club or or a group to overlap community with health, and this is a very effective strategy. 
Maybe your job requires you to travel and you treat it as an adventure to align it with what makes you happy. You know people who are great at this when you see them. They live their passions, they work their passions, and they build a family and a, a fulfilling spirituality around it. To summarize your life balance lessons, only you can define how you want to allocate your finite time and energy. Letting others set your life priorities will make you unhappy and leave you unfulfilled. Your balance will align with how you define yourself. No one can create more time, continue to learn and expand the fullness of every area in your life, and finding practical ways to overlap your life areas will create greater fulfillment without sacrifice. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. John, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you today? So we understand you're just back from the uh, from the Kona experience. Yep, absolutely. Just got off the plane a couple of days ago, so dealing with a little bit of jet lag, but happy to be back in the States. Yeah, and that's almost a perfect jet lag because that's just about off by 180 degrees time-wise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, we took a late flight coming back, so we were able to sleep and get, catch up a little bit, but... Um, Still a little bit bit uh, different back here in the Northeast with the change in the leaves and the and the weather and you know such this year or this time of year. It's always good to go away, but it's always better to come back home. Yeah, now we're in the thick of marathon season back here on the. Yep, uh, I, yep. I guess worldwide, on the East Coast especially, this has always been race season. Absolutely, it's perfect weather. Yep. Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes <laughs> we sometimes we get hurricanes. Or the remainder of hurricanes. Right. You get that day where you have a marathon. There's, uh, you know, 30 mile an hour gusting winds with sideways rain. Uh, those were always fun. Yeah. So, or in the case of Boston this year, when they had when they had 90s 90 degree weather and they were letting people defer their uh, their registrations to the next year. So I guess you never know. Yeah, that's right. So I'd rather have the cold weather than the hot weather. Absolutely. That's just how I'm designed as a as a human. My ancestors weren't doing anything in the desert or the jungle. They were digging ditches and peat bugs. Yeah. Well, you don't want it. We were meant, we were talking about Kona. You don't want to uh, be racing in Kona in October. Well, probably any time of year, but um, it is it is hot. Is it? Absolutely. Give us the, the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do. I am a USAT certified coach, and I am CEO and president of a business called TriVault, T-R-I-V-A-U-L-T. And we started about 10 years ago coaching triathletes and other multi-sport endurance athletes. And we, like I said, we've been in business for a little while now. And when I first started out, it was just kind of a one-man show. And we've slowly been growing. I have a huge staff of three now. And we've expanded into um, not only the coaching port portion of it, but also into the nutrition. We brought a chiropractor slash physical therapist on board. Mm. And we're doing some functional movement analysis and helping identify with people where there might be some limitations within their body so we can focus on those specific areas and then help make them a better athlete when it comes back to race season. Yeah, I mean, triathlon, especially when you get into higher levels of the amateur ranks, is a very interesting headset. It's not, you know, throw on your shoes and go out for a run. It, it's very intense. 
it's almost like a full-time job. People throw a lot of energy and a lot of capital. You know, even at the mid-level amateur people, they throw a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of capital at their training. You know, it's always been a bit of a barrier for a lot of people. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, when most when new people come in, that's the first <clears throat> thing that I tell them because they go out and they they'll you know they'll watch the Kona broadcast on NBC and that's what they're exposed to when it comes to the world of triathlon. And they think they need a $10,000 bike and they think that they need high end wheels and aero helmets and all that. And I tell them really what you need is a bike, a pair of running shoes, and that's about it. But what happens is as you get caught up and as you said, as you get better and as you move up the ranks from a local person who's just having fun and competing to getting on the podium and then maybe moving it at a regional level or even moving into that elite area, it, it does become very expensive very quickly and it does it does become a barrier. And that's one of the things, you know, we try to get a lot of uh, kids into it. But the problem with kids, with them growing, it's the bike. Um, we can, you know, running shoes, you can get a new pair of running shoes as, as the feet grow. And swimming isn't really a, a big issue. But really getting them fit on bikes, uh, you know, year after year is, is a difficult. And that's one of the reasons why when you take a look at the sport, the sport is generally filled with middle-aged people. People right. who yeah. are between 30 and 40 years old. Okay, and that's that, not that's not middle aged, but I get your well, point. <laughs> well, when you take a look at other sport, you know, when you take a look at other sports, and, and and one of the things, one of the other roles that I also serve is I'm the regional youth youth coordinator for the Northeast region of USAT, and one of my goals and one of my charges is to help get more people involved and more young people involved. And let them see what the benefits of multi-sport can be for them. Yeah. But yeah. what we find with the young, it, it's they're all tied up in team sports. So they're playing soccer or football or basketball at that age, and those sports are typically part of their school day. So it's very easy for a child to become part of the soccer team. You know, you go to class all day. You finish class. You go to play soccer. You come home from soccer, and and you don't really have to worry about any any other transportation to get anywhere. And what do you need to play soccer? You need a pair of cleats and and, and a soccer ball and, and the rest of the team. So we find that triathlon, there is a barrier, especially with young people getting getting into the sport. Yeah, and I would say it's, you know, there's even even older than that. You know, the, the people I see are the people who have the, the time and the money, frankly, to compete, right? Absolutely. And again, if you're someone who's in your 20s, 30s, and you're just starting a family, that's a very bad time to get into it. Because especially when you get into the longer distances, the half of the full Ironman distance, it takes a lot of time and you have to have your family on board. They have to know that you're going to be going out for five, six, seven hours of training on the weekend, on, on one day of the weekend, they have to know that when you come home, you're going to be dead tired and there's going to be nothing that you want to do except take in some nutrition and go to sleep. So people have to kind of pick up the slack, helping with chores around the house, helping with different different things that, that you may have done in your role as that particular family member, whether you're the, the mother or the father or however however that works. So it definitely would make a huge impact on a young family 
where an older, more well-established family, the kids might be a little bit older, they're <clears throat> self-sufficient, and hopefully your partner is also on board with what you're doing and they're going to be there and, and help and support you and that they're kind of picking up the slack as you're in the bulk of your training. Yeah. And that being said, though, on the other hand, right, it, I would see this as a great sport for like teenagers because at the sprint level, it's just a blast, you know, yeah. having to swim, bike and run is this confusion of events and the whole thing's sort of just frantic and, you know, going into the washing machine and the lake and yeah, it's just a blast, right? It's a it's a very visceral, changing, dynamic experience in terms of, you know, compared to like a road race, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the kids that we do have involved in it, they love it. They're addicted for lack of any other term that I can think of. It's amazing. It's exactly what you said. It's unlike anything that they've ever experienced before. The other dynamic that we see with the young kids, especially when they get into it, typically they get into it because there is an adult in their life that's part of it that's pulling them into it. So it is the only sport that I can really think of where, for example, a mother and daughter can compete in exactly the same race, doing exactly the same event at exactly the same time. And that is pretty cool to have the parents and the kids out on the race course at exactly the same time. So neither one of them is really a spectator anymore. They, they're becoming, um, well, they're becoming competitors. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting when you get to see a father race a son or a mother race a daughter or any combination of, of that. So it's pretty cool. Probably the barriers are probably self-created because if you look at your, your typical mid packer, I mean, you, you probably know the numbers. What's the difference of your typical mid packer, riding, you know, my old steel Fuji from 1998 versus a $5,000 carbon bike. You know, what's that really worth for a mid-packer? It, it, two you know, minutes? In a sprint it, triathlon, it's probably worth nothing. Yeah, really, it's not. And it's funny, you know, we always say it's about the engine. And the engine is, is, the, is the person that's pedaling the bike. And I could probably find an athlete that could have an old rickety bike, and they could probably beat the person on the $10,000 bike. Actually, I know I actually know someone who qualified for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships two years ago. She was on a bike that was, a, I think it was a 2000 and, I don't know, it was it was an older bike. And she just tells me she had a great time passing all those guys with their disc wheels and, you know, their full aero helmets and, and their speed suits and everything. And she just got a real real pleasure out of, out of blowing by them. So it's really the athlete that makes the bike go. Um, and you're absolutely right. The shorter the race, the the less variation there's going to be in time. And, you know, a lot of people do that because because the bike looks cool. They think that they look good and it gives them a little bit of an ego boost. But as far as translating into speed on the course, there's very little measurable differences. Sure. It's, it's part of the cachet of the sport. You know, these guys brag about how much they spent and how much it costs them. So it's, yeah. it's, it's part of the whole package. So you're exactly. training. You had some competitors at Kona this year? I did. We had two. We had two competitors in, in Kona this year. That was pretty fun. I went in 2010. I didn't have any athletes when I went in 2010, but I thought it would be a good idea to get out there and see it firsthand. And I had an opportunity to get out on the course and meet some different athletes. And I was just out there basically to educate myself. 
So when the time came for me to have athletes who were looking to qualify, I at least had some knowledge of, of the course and some knowledge of, of what had what happens in Kona, and I was able to experience it firsthand. So yeah, we had we had two athletes out there in, in Kona this year, so it was pretty it was pretty exciting to actually be there with them and and uh, experience when they crossed the finish line. Yeah, and and Kona's a, a difficult course as courses go, right? I mean the the conditions in the course are fairly challenging. Yeah, it, it is. Most people, for whatever reason, have an impression that the bike course is flat, and it is not flat at all. It's not hilly like you know a, a Canada course, like the Pecton course, or um, or what St. George would have been. But it is certainly not a flat course like Florida. So people really have that misconception that the both the bike and the run course are flat, and they are not flat whatsoever. But the big thing, Chris, the big thing in Kona is the winds. Right. It's the trade winds, and they come off the ocean. And what happens is a lot of people, the big thing that happens to a lot of people in Kona is they get dehydrated. But it's not necessarily because of the heat. Now, don't get me wrong. It's hot and it's humid. But because it is so windy on the bike, people have trouble with their bike handling. And they are so concerned and so focused on keeping their bike on the road and not being literally blown over that they forget to take in uh, hydration and they forget to take in nutrition. And that's where most of the problems come from on the bike course in Kona. My understanding is it's not because it's a headwind, it's because it's an erratic sort of sidewind. And these guys are riding these really unstable, wind-optimized bikes, but they're wind-optimized to go straight into the wind, not wind-optimized to get hit from the side or at a glancing angle exactly so you don't get a tailwind and that's what you know some people think well if i get a tail or you know if i got a headwind going out i'm going to get a tailwind going back and you don't you get it is exactly what you you mentioned and the multiplier on top of that which makes it even worse if you can imagine when you're riding down the queen k basically you're going through a lava field and there are big piles of lava and what happens is those big hills will block the wind as you're going past them. But as soon as you come out, the wind actually funnels itself through the different mounds of lava. So you're riding along, you're not getting any crosswind, you're not getting any any turbulence, and then you come out and all of a sudden you get blasted by what feels like someone just opened the door to a blast furnace. So they're not cool winds, they're not refreshing winds, they feel <clears> like someone opened the door to a 500 degree oven and not only do you get the heat from that but it also literally will force you i've seen bikes move two three feet across the road because of going through this this crosswind that just kind of hits you out of nowhere so it's it's it can be really treacherous right and like you said because they're having to fight that it keeps them from relaxing and a big part of the longer distances in the triathlon is being able to race relaxed Yep. So if you're constantly having to tense up and, and react, that's going to keep you from riding in the zone, so to speak, and saving your energy. Exactly. And that's a big part about, you know, the, about the sport in itself. It's, it's not about swimming, biking, and running. It's about triathlon. And that's the big thing that we have to overcome with a lot of our athletes is stop thinking about it like three individual sports and look at it as just the one sport that it is. And I hear this all the time from people. I had a great bike, but I fell apart on the run. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe you didn't have a great bike. Maybe you pushed it too hard on the bike and you left a little bit on the bike course that you needed for the run. And that just multiplies itself in, in a place like Kona 
as you said, just not being comfortable on the bike and not taking in enough nutrition. And if you're coming off the bike and you're feeling beat up and run down, uh, you're not going to do well on the next 26.2 mile run. It's just, it's, it, it's not going to come together for you. Yeah. And, that, and that's part of the learning experience and the coaching experience. I bet, you know, the guys who are doing Kona have been through enough Ironman experiences to understand how their engine works. They do. And then the other thing, too, is what a lot of people don't realize is the pros spend many, many weeks and months in Kona training and they're, you know, they're used to it. And people are like, how do they go in, you know, eight and a half hours, nine hours? And of course, they're pros and this is what they do for a living. But yeah. um, most of the age groupers fly in maybe the Thursday before or the Monday before. So they're not acclimated to the heat and they may have never ridden the course before. And, you know, the list goes on and on where the pros, they've been there. Um, not only have they raced there many times before, but they've been training there for, for months. So they definitely have a huge advantage over over the age groupers that are just coming in for the first time. What are the uh, big uh, learnings for you having gone there and, and watched this and watched your athletes through it? Does anything stand out that, you know, is particularly something that might have surprised you? I think the thing with people that go there probably the big learnings is most of what we what we talked about um, you can tell people over and over again about um, you know proper nutrition and how the winds are going to be but until they experience that for themselves I think that that is just something that you have to feel and you have to kind of go through I think the other thing too is people will get caught up because it is such a big event people get caught up in the hype and they don't take uh, time and they don't rest. So, for example, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're in Hawaii, and a lot of them may have never been in Hawaii. So they want to go sightseeing, and they want to go to the lava, and they want to go hiking, and they want to do all these things. And they forget that coming up on Saturday, they have a race, and they should be you know, basically sitting around, keeping their feet up, staying hydrated, taking in proper nutrition, yet they're out in lava fields walking around and sightseeing and that type of thing. But it's really hard to tell someone when they're in Hawaii for the first time in their life not to go sightseeing. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing, just the atmosphere. Um, Kona is a, a small little town that really hasn't been developed too much, and I think that's by design, to be honest with you. But when Iron Man comes into town, it becomes like a rock concert. And the streets are filled with people and there's music blaring. And when you come out of transition, it's very, very difficult for your adrenaline just not to be pumping so hard. And you have to remember that you have to take it easy and you have to slow down and you have to race within yourself because, first of all, everyone around you is the best of the best. And all the people along the, that are lining the sides of the road, screaming, cowbells, the whole nine yards, this isn't your local race atmosphere. This is big time, and it's, it's huge, and it's just it, – it's, it's about tenfold bigger than any other event that I've ever been to, including any other Ironman event. It is just amazing how much bigger and how greater the atmosphere and the hype is around, around this event. Sure, it's sort of the uh, the church of triathlon. So oh, it's huge. So yeah. pe people will get overwhelmed. Absolutely. Let's move towards the end of our our conversation here. How does your training package work if somebody wants to get trained up? 
Our training is very, very individualized. I realize that there's a lot of information out there on the internet and books and so on and so forth. So what I like to do is when I first get together with people is I have uh, what I call an athlete profile. It's an online profile that they fill out that they give me probably more information than they, than they want to. But basically it's, it's, it's a history, where they've been, where, um, where they are now and where they wanna go. And once we review that athlete profile, I have a conversation with that athlete and I talk to them about what my philosophies are um, about coaching. Uh, my background before I got into coaching was I was a professional educator. And one of the things that I do as a coach is I teach you how to do the things that you need to do. I don't just tell you how to do them. So it goes back to the old saying that if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Well, I teach people how to be athletes and I teach them how to train appropriately. So that's basically my philosophy. And if that matches with the athlete and that's what the athlete's looking for, then we basically move to the next step and we pretty much select their their A race and we talk about how they, you know, how they want to do in this A race and how it compares to what they have done in the past. And then we basically lay out their training plan. And depending on what their A race is, we basically back out of that training plan and then we take a look at what they need. Um, and then if there's any supplemental things that they, that they need along the way, like, for instance, I talked earlier about how we've recently added in our nutrition program, which matches our athletes' training. So, for example, if they're peaking up and they're doing a lot more training, we're going to be adding in more calories. We're going to be adding in more protein during recovery weeks and so on and so forth with, with nutrition. And we just puzzle together, basically, and then we, we start their training. And I do training with local people, as, as, and I also have clients as far away. I'm on the East Coast, as you know, and I have clients as far away as San Diego, California. So um, it can be done uh, locally, and it can be done uh, you know, communicating uh, online, telephone, and with any other technologies that we need to communicate through, through, through distance. What are your links? How do people find you? best way to find me is on the internet. So it's www.trivault.com or I can be reached via email at john, J-O-N, at trivault.com. And folks can uh, reach out to you if they have some questions. You can sound like you know where all the uh, the skeletons are buried in the triathlon world. Well, I don't I don't know all the skeletons, but we're, we're certainly trying to dig, dig up as many as possible. That's the best part of my job is not only do I get to help people to help people learn, but I'm constantly learning myself. So that's one of the things that I really, really enjoy about the sport. It's 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 still young enough and it's still new enough that we're all learning and sharing that information with each other as we as we move forward. All right. Well, welcome back from Kona and thanks for coming on and sharing with us. Okay. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. All right. Bye bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Running your best. What does it mean to run your best? I used to think that it meant getting to the finish line with absolutely nothing left in the tank. I thought that meant training to the edge of my ability, leaving each and every hard run like a sweat-soaked exclamation point. There were a few races where I knew I had done my best. I knew that I had trained well, executed well, and left nothing on the table. 
I would be filled with a sincere sense of accomplishment. I knew I had done my best. The truth is, I can't do that anymore. I can't run seven days a week. I can't double up my hard workouts. I cannot run my best. Now it is left to me to redefine what best is, because the reality is that no one else defined my training in racing. No one else stood by with a measuring stick and decided if I was holding up my end of the bargain. These conditions for best were and are self-created. Training and racing to the edge of your ability, whether you are gifted or not, can be an out-of-balance situation. It's easy to find those ex-athletes who gave everything and now cannot even participate in the sport because they are either physically or mentally broken. And sometimes when you go to the dark place in training and give 100%, it's too much. You're giving something you can't get back. I ran a 5K race with my daughter on Thanksgiving Day, and we started way at the back of the pack. And I ran with her for a mile or so and then stretched it out a little. I didn't race, per se. I just let my pace and form expand to fill the void. No max heart rate, no sucking wind, just stretching it out and having fun, passing people and chatting with the other runners and following people and noticing things. Inside a race is an interesting view. In a family 5K like this, you'll see lots of drama. As folks start to fade after a mile or so, you'll see young kids racing along in tent. You'll see those people who are running at the edge of their ability, maxing it out. I was not maxing it out. I was at what I might refer to as a comfortable tempo pace. Every time I'd pass someone whom I knew, I'd pause and chat a bit, make a few wise cracks. Finally, on the last hill, before the finish, I saw my friend Charlie up ahead. And he was racing. I pulled up beside him. And I told him, with a chuckle, that I was now in his age group. He was working hard. He was running well. He was not happy to see me. I coached him a little to hold his form and focus on that last downhill into the finish. And on that final stretch, I held back any final surges or sprints or heroics, letting several folks go hurling past, especially Charlie, who had a great race. And I didn't want to be that guy that comes up from behind at the end of a race and ditches a bunch of people in the chute because he's been sandbagging it. I think I ran my best in that race. I'm quite sure of it. I ran with my daughter and my friends on a beautiful fall morning. I was with my community of runners. I stretched out my legs and breathed the air. I didn't leave it all out there. But I did participate in the fullness of the race. It's up to each of us to draw our own line on what is a worthwhile effort. There's a time and a place to race on the edge, but it's not every time. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. That's it, my friends. You have successfully navigated yourself to the end of the first edition of the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast. Thanks for giving me a vacation. I needed it. (laughs) I've got a couple awesome interviews in the can for the next couple of weeks. I had a cool chat with this young lady who ran unassisted across the U.S., 
And I had another long talk with the founder of a company called Junji. And I think you'll like both of these. I've been trying to get much deeper in these interviews. And I've been turning in some long trail runs on the last few Sundays. I'm up to 12 miles or so in a couple of hours out in the trails. The foot's not perfect, but it's hanging in there. I've been taking Buddy, the old wonder dog, with me, and he loves trail running. He just turned 10 years old, so I have to keep an eye on him. We saw something a couple weeks ago that I've never seen before. We were down by the Nashua River in Groton, and there was a flock of swans. Had to be 20 or more swans out on the water. It was an impressive sight. So many of those big white birds all in one place. I got my confirmation card for the Boston Marathon. I couldn't manage to get my daughter a waiver number, but we'll do some other marathon this spring together. It's probably for the best anyhow, because Boston is a cruel bitch of a marathon for a first-timer. And we'll go someplace cool where I can pick up another state, and everyone isn't so intense and serious. I'll be running Boston for Team Hoyt, and I'm trying to get Dick on for an interview. I do need your donations. If everyone gives me 10 or 20 bucks, I'll more than meet my goal. You can find the link on www.runrunlive.com. I'd be interested in what you think about any of these topics, or if there is something else you'd like me to discourse on, leave me a comment on the runrunlive.com website, where I have all these wonderful things posted. And that's it. Have a great holiday season. If that's your thing, hug your loved ones, especially the little ones, and I'll see you out there. Thank you for riding along. My name is Chris, and that is CYKT Russell on all the social media and email systems. The podcast is free for you because I like doing it. So it is only your internal moral compass that will compel you to let me know what you think by leaving a comment on my website at www.runrunlive.com. Or even better, if you want to change my world, check out my books in regular Kindle or audio format. The links are on my website and in the show notes. And if you want to be kept in the loop, you can sign up for the email list on runrunlive.com as well. I will send you the show notes. So remember, love life, do epic stuff, and I'll see you out there.